Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome listeners to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. I am Davita and I want to personally pay my respect to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the custodians of the land from which we broadcast today and where I live. I pay my respect to the elders and any First Nations listeners tuning in today. My co-host is Trev and... He's here with me today. Hello, Trev. <laughs> yeah, hi, everyone. Hi, Davida. Um, yeah, I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people for being the owners and custodians of the land that I live and work and play on and acknowledge that the invasion has never stopped and that we're in a colonial war that's ongoing on the land that we work and live on um, and that we should really think about that in all aspects of our lives. Yeah, and that's also something that today we want to talk a bit more explicitly about the settler colonial context of Australia and how that affects animals and that the work that we need to do to address ongoing colonialism as settlers. Yeah. Um, and we have a great guest for that today. So our guest today is Shannon Woodcock. Shannon is a settler historian and practices First Nations community-directed anti-racist historical work. They live on Gunai Kurnai country. And we thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's Good great. To have you. Yeah, and we have some animal family members <laughs> among us as well. That's right. I'm here with Guji, who is my youngest and most courageous family member. He was a <laughs> pandemic baby. So I went into a, um, a bird food shop and I heard at the beginning of the pandemic and I heard the shop owner say if there's a pandemic I don't want to have to come in here and feed the livestock just get rid of them so smart Shannon said don't listen and normal Shannon said oh but they'll come home with me so that's how (laughs) he came to live with me as a baby yeah so he's totally used to full-time attention and Mm. zoom and he loves being in the morning meetings Mm. And so for those, obviously, that can't see on Zoom, um, he he's a cockatiel? That's correct. Yeah, yep. he's grey with a yellow face with some pinky red cheeks. <laughs> and just a shout out, I'm coming to you today from Gunai Kurnai country. Um, I'm based out here in the town that the colonists call Bansdale. Yeah, and sovereignty was never ceded and people are still fighting and living here and caring for country and being cared for. Yeah. Sorry, what's their name? I can see them again in the Zoom window, but I can't remember their name. 
Gucci. It's Albanian for courageous. Mm. Yeah. Gucci. It sounds like Gucci or that brand name, but I only realized afterwards. <laughs> so my other two cockatiels are called Zotri Pashmangshme, which is also Albanian. It means like Mr. Inevitable because the first time I saw him, I was like, okay, you're definitely one of my people. <laughs> and the middle-aged cockatiel, their name is Kitab which is, of course, Arabic and Persian for book. Book. Yeah, ah. because their eyes are the most amazing dark colour that looks like they have all the information of the world in them. Mm. Wow. And do they all get along pretty well? Yes. They're all uh, massive fans of Beyonce <laughs> and Kendrick Lamar and a little bit of um, Star Wars. So <laughs> let's just hope that we can get through today without serious singing time <laughs> i'm 100 okay with that absolutely can we dedicate a show to that <laughs> yeah you're welcome if that happens we're just gonna drop our our outline and we're just gonna listen in yeah <laughs> um but yeah we'd love to get to know you a bit first shannon um and your journey in different types of activism not only animals but also other social justice causes so yeah, what's got you on your journey for animal activism and how, how does that relate to other social justice issues that mm -hmm. you advocate for? Um, that's a great question. It's something I think about so much. And I'm white and my, my parents were both born in Australia, but they're both Anglo-Australian, um, so white colonists. Uh, when I was 14, I became vegetarian. Or the way it made sense to me was if we're always talking about a right to life, then why don't we talk about who has a right to their own death? Mm. For me, it was, it's just obviously wrong <laughs> to kill somebody or to kill an animal as well. I mean, what's the difference? That Also, that divide between humans and animals was never very clear to me. But also, I was, I was raised in a family where my mum was, I mean, my parents are both working class and my mum worked as a bartender in the 1960s and early 1970s in Australia I mean, she left school, she travelled as a bartender and the work of barmaids in that time was to keep the bars segregated. So white wow. people drank in one bar and Aboriginal people were forced to stay in another. So my mum had a story about the time when she decided she wasn't going to do this anymore, do that work of colour segregation and what happened to her as a result, like being run out of the town of Mikithara out on Yamaji country in WA. So that was part of my upbringing and learning about apartheid, of course, in the 1980s and the 1982 Stolen Wealth Games protests in Brisbane. I was only five, but I remember my mum telling me about it and watching the protesters and learning about who the Springboks are. And so everything kind of, I was just raised that, yeah, you should watch out for what's going on around you and be careful that your own way of making a living isn't actually shoring up someone else's oppression. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Because <laughs> um, now you're doing work in the academic field and you have been for a while. What was the crossover like for you from, or like what happened first? I'm interested in the relationship between, or if there's a difference or how much of a difference between academia and advocacy or activism and where they are similar and where they're really different or how do you navigate both in your life or, mm -hmm. or like trying to be involved in both? That's a great question too. 
Because being working class and the first one in my family to go to university, I had no idea that activism and academia were separate or were meant to be. And I was lucky enough to be at QUT in the early 90s in Brisbane. And we had um, great academics there like Jane Williamson Fien and Lynette Finch. And they also were free enough in those days to be really watching post-colonial theory happen and knowing that the main action was coming from, for example, Indian feminist circles in Mumbai and Mm. um, Indigenous Australian communities fighting against prisons. And I always felt like I knew there was something different about me and I didn't realise till I was doing my PhD at Uni Melbourne in 2000 that it was class when I first met for the first time, like people in my cohort whose parents were judges or other professions. So my personal philosophy was, because I always felt so like not at home in academia, that I just keep on reading books and thinking and having conversations. And that if anyone ever told me I didn't fit in and I should leave, then I'd face that problem when I came to it. And until then, I just keep being myself. Mm. Mm. And have you noticed peers who may have been more activism oriented, but had to sort of tone down their message in academia or? Mm. Yeah. I think it's really hard, but like, it's a struggle no matter what personality you have. And I have endless respect for people who can work within systems and we all do things differently. Like if we all, Uh, have a conversation with someone who we disagree with, we'll all take that differently. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's something that I'm still trying to figure out the words and the tone to have a conversation with someone you don't agree with and how to respectfully express that in the moment. Because it's, you know, in the moment, there's a lot of stress happening, emotions happening, and then you have to navigate that to be clear about what you say and what you feel. And um, I have a lot of respect for people who can do that, actually. Um, yeah, sometimes. And I show think, that kindness. Yeah, one strategy is to, or something I often do is because I hate, uh, for example, difficult situation for me is when someone says something racist and you're actually thinking in your head, how am I going to speak back to this? Mm-hmm. And I usually say something like, oh, like I can feel my heart rate rising. Isn't it interesting how even between us two white people, my heart rate is rising talking about Aboriginal mm. people? And why Why might that be? Like, well, what do you reckon is happening? Yeah. And people have an answer. Like people are able, if you can talk in like the way that makes sense to other people, I don't know. <laughs> mm. It's hard. It's really hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask in your past doing animal advocacy and also learning about anti racism and anti racism ad- advocacy, did one come first or did you learn more about one before the other? And the follow up to that is when did you start to see how they were related and did that change your advocacy? That's massive. Yeah, I would say. For me, it's been really difficult and I didn't consider myself an animal rights advocate, although, of course, in my family from age 14, if you say you're going vegetarian in working class Queensland, you automatically are endlessly having arguments about why you shouldn't kill animals and eat them. It's so obvious, you know. But I would actually say that my understanding of what we call animals has only really deepened and come about in the last 
five years since working, doing Gun Icon, I directed work. That sounds really strange, but I had no idea when I moved out here and said to Rob Hudson at the Keeping Place, the Crowd Tungalong Keeping Place out here in Bansdale, okay, I'm a historian, I'm here, direct me. I'm not going to do anything without you directing me. Um, I'm just going to sit at home, educate myself until you give me a job to do. And so he gave me jobs. Uh, and most of those jobs were jobs that allowed me to learn about what the Gunai Kurnai community believe and know about country and that's a lot of what constitutes the book that Rob and I have coming out together in April hmm. which is it's called self-determined first nations museums and colonial contestation the keeping place so it's a long title but it's basically a story about what you learn at the keeping place and a lot of that is about animals as a side point then for people that don't know what is the keeping place can you give us a bit of an introduction about that for sure. A keeping place is the name given to cultural centres of different First Nations communities on their own countries across the continent we know as Australia. But there are also keeping places run by First Nations communities in Turtle Island on the land we also call Canada and America. And they're cultural centres where Indigenous communities can keep culture alive they have permanent exhibitions designed by the community in consultation for colonial or settler visitors to come and meet with First Nations culture and to learn. And it's also the place where um, ancestor objects and the bodies of ancestors that were stolen by white people can be returned to on country. Mm. So it's a really full-on beautiful space, which is like a dense powerful energy where you collect together all of the culture and the desire to keep community going into the future. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And are there many of those sort of local to the Nam, like Melbourne area? Yep. So Wurundjeri community have the Koori Heritage Trust <laughs> down there at Federation Square. I think they're based and now, and that was opened in 1985 by Uncle Jim Berg and he led a fight of First Nations people from all over what we call Victoria now for the ancestor remains kept by Melbourne Museum to be reburied over there in what was formerly the Aboriginal Protectorate of Port Melbourne, which is now the Botanical Gardens. So <laughs> the fight's been going on along with land rights and the fight for health services and self-determined community-run organisations since the 1970s. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. What you said reminded me of another issue that came up. I know a couple of years ago, some listeners might remember the march to close all slaughterhouses went through the Queen Victoria Market in the middle of the city for a couple of years in a row. And I remember learning and being very conflicted about hearing the history of Queen Vic Market, where it is a burial site where there's still some unnamed remains of First Nations people, as well as others. But there's been a bit of a campaign because I know that they're looking to redevelop the Queen Vic Market. When I say they, I mean, you know, the council and the state governments, they're looking to do a big redevelopment. And there's a push to try and, as part of that, to try and exhume the remains and put them to a final resting place. Have you heard much about that issue? Because I, I found it really interesting learning about that as we were planning a animal rights march to be happening on that same land. And it was... 
yeah, I guess really opening my eyes to some of the ways that these issues can intertwine and that we really should be mindful about it. But it's, it's such a difficult one to navigate. Yeah. I think what you're identifying is that really difficult intersection between it's obvious that every human being deserves a resting place that is respected and that should happen according to the culture from which the person comes. I have no idea or possibility to, to comment on what should happen to ancestor remains wherever they are. That's the local community. But I think for us as white settler vegans and as a historian, it comes quite naturally to me that I start thinking of it from the point of view that if we're talking about white settlers and animals, we could not have stolen this country without using animals and killing animals for profit. So that in this way, white racism, the idea that the first colonists had that they can kill Aboriginal people however they want to in order to steal their land, that goes hand in hand with the white European idea that humans are one species and animals are a whole other group and humans should have the right to control animals however they want for profit. And then further to that, of course, it's white men who at that time controlled the capitalist economy, could own property. They were the ones who you don't just own the animal and then you sell them and you make money. You need to own the animals and force them to make more animals to reproduce themselves in order to reproduce your profit into the future. So this is what historians usually speak about when they say that the modern period and colonialism relies on race, sexuality, and gender together. And they leave out that modern colonialism also relied on an anthropocentrism Mm. that created a category called animals. Yeah. So it's pretty complicated and yet it's so simple because those first white men who came, there were so few of them, but they brought with them hundreds that they were just boat after boat from what is now Tasmania, full of cattle and sheep to fill up, to occupy the country before mm. they even started making fences. And then once they got there, it was just men and sheep and cows held captive They would call the government to send out the Crown Commissioner for Lands. So out here in Gunnokurna country, that was Tyres. His name was Tyres. And he would come out and count the number of sheep or cows every man had and work out how much land they would be allowed to keep based on how many cows and sheep they already had there. But at the same time, he would ask them, how many Aboriginal people have you seen on your property? And they would give him a statistic and then they argued that there were too many Aboriginal people for them to kill by themselves so the government should form a police force to come and assist them by taking care of, in inverted commas, the Aboriginal problem, which was, of course, Gunnokurno resistance. So the development of a police force in the colony was directly motivated by white men saying, listen, my cows and sheep need to be left peaceful to reproduce so that we all get to steal the land. So you better bring cops with guns to do the killing for us so that we can get on with doing the stealing that will assist your future generations. Yeah. It's pretty intense, isn't it? It is. And it's something that people don't put together all the time. Like they don't put together those points and see it add up. It's really lacking from a lot of conversation and debate on these issues. I don't think it's written yet. I don't think historians have written this down yet because, of course, historians are also 100% mostly white ones anyway, implicated in the colonial project. 
So, uh, you know, they see it exactly as we're starting from a blank slate now. I'm not responsible for any of this. My choosing to eat animal flesh is not directly responsible for the bare naked paddock that I see on my weekend away in Gippsland. Mm-hmm. Or even worse, they now, people come out here to the countryside in inverted commas and think they're seeing nature when, in fact, what they're seeing is absolutely destroyed ecology. Yeah. Mm. It was destroyed for the captivity of cows and sheep. Mm. Yeah, it's heavily disturbed environments with so much what was there is lost. That's also, it's one of the things that I see when driving through Australia is just conquest, paddocks, conquest. And it's not a nice painting of the land, you know, it's violence. Yeah. Driving through the country, it looks like conquest. Yeah, it does. It's about time to take a song break. Uh, the first song that you've chosen, Shannon, is Treaty by Yothi Yindi.
on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Welcome back. That was Yotha Yindi with Treaty. And you're listening to 3CR. This is Freedom of Species. Your hosts this week, myself, Trev, and Davida. We're here today talking about animals and colonialism in Australia with Shannon. And can you tell us a bit more about the place of animals in the history of settler colonial Australia? Yes. Um, so the way that colonists after invasion came here and hunted animals as sport hmm. from the very beginning. And I'm talking about shooting hundreds of ducks, hundreds of possums, hundreds of kangaroos, basically trying to kill as many animals as possible because all animals were competition for grass, which they considered the important thing for their cows and sheep, but also shooting animals because they saw them as only good for torturing, basically. Animal pain didn't exist and just shooting. So there are registered moments in history, for example, at Ramayak Mission where white men came out to hunt and Reverend Hagenauer, who was running the mission, which for people who don't know was Aboriginal people were all forced to be registered and living within prescribed limits called mission reserves after 1869 and they were controlled there basically like a prison they weren't allowed to come and go without permission and the mission manager Reverend Hagenauer would let in inverted commas some Aboriginal men go with the hunters sometimes so that they could get some extra uh, meat from them and also share their skills. In one event the white hunters were so shocked that Aboriginal men were not killing all the kangaroos that they could see And they asked if it was to do with not having enough guns and Aboriginal people explained that they care for the kangaroos and they don't kill them unless they need to eat with their family. And so a lot of Gunai Kurnai stories are also about that, their interactions with animals about who will give their life and 
how that will be repaid to country. Hmm. Just to take that a bit further, I'm sorry, but I'd love to say that there's a new book out called Black and Blue. It's a memoir by Ani Ronigori, and it just hmm. won the New South Wales Premier's Award for Fiction, I believe. Hmm. Ani Ronigori records in there an old story from the Women on Lake Tyres mission, which is down here on Gunai Kurnai country, about protecting themselves from white men who would visit the mission with the intent of perpetrating sexual violence. And down at the mission, on the lakes there, those white men would come in with guns and alcohol because they went there for hunting on the weekends. Hmm. So the link between white men travelling for tourism in the late 19th century with hunting and with sexual violence against Aboriginal people is well established in the historical documents. Hmm. But, again, something that historians haven't written about yet. Yeah, Yeah, wow. I also want to, I'd also love to include a bit more space for talking about our responsibilities as settlers and what we can do. And you mentioned we as white settler vegans. I feel like there is overlap in indigenous social justice movements. Yeah. Um, but how do you do that? Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's actually, for me, it's quite clear. It's the same as with writing history. I mean, how would I work from white sources, which is like a perpetrator archive? The only things we have in a white archive are perpetrator sources. Of course, they didn't write down what they do. So as a historian, the only real history starts with community knowledge because if you've witnessed your family being murdered, Of course, four generations later, you know where that happened and who did it. That knowledge is still right here in the community. It's just that white people have this crazy idea that what's written in the archive is the truth. So in terms of being a vegan, I see it the same way as being a historian. My job as a white colonist on unceded land is to act like I would in anybody's house, and that is with massive humility and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm here And I'm going to take your direction on what I should do. Yeah. And what I choose to do as a white person is tell other white people, hey, stop destroying other people's homes. I'm responsible for what I do as a white person. The whites before me (laughs) have worked really hard to wreck Gunai Kurnai country and they're still going. So I stand up to white people. And I say that in my work with community from the beginning with Rob, I presented myself as saying I'm not afraid to or I think my job is to speak to other white people with them about what should we do here now? Okay, we're here. Mm -hmm. Should we leave? Why not? Should we give all our land back? Why not? Mm. I mean, it was just stolen and the people Mm. who it belongs to are right there. Seems kind of obvious, right? Like any kid would say give it back. If you you feel bad, then give it back. Yeah. There's 60,000 years minimum. That's like thousands and thousands of generations of people and scientific knowledge about country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a way to think about this, and, and one thing I've learned to start from the end and move backwards is I was speaking with Rob, and he tells visitors to the keeping place about how Gunai Kurnai people are born from and created by the relationship between Boran and Tuck, who were a pelican and a musk duck. And Boren was walking down from the mountains one day, he's a pelican, with his canoe, and he came to the lake and he kept hearing this, like, tap, tap, tap. And he was like, what is that noise? And he looked inside his canoe and he saw Tuck, who's a musk duck. (laughs) And um, together they decided to create Gunai Kurnai people. So Gunai Kurnai people were born to Boren and Tuck. And I was always thinking, like, 
what does this mean? And Rob tells visitors to the keeping place that this is not a story, that this is what Gunai Kurnai people believe. This is where they came from. And a lot of sources like local organisations, when they come to put this on the internet, kind of change it a bit and say like it's a creation story or a Boron and Tuck were a man and a woman. But all over the world there are critical Indigenous studies scholars who look at the fact that First Nations people were often born to non-human species and they ask what does this mean? And, of course, it means that if I was born to a pelican and a musk duck, then I need to learn their languages as I grow up and I'm responsible or I'm dependent on them, number one, for my life. They teach me how to be. And secondly, they're my kin. Hmm. Yeah, and at that point I, I called Rob and I was like, Rob, what's the word in Gunai Kurnai language for animals? Like I know pelican, musk duck, what about animals? And he's like, there is none because there's no such thing. There's pelican, eagle, musk duck, dingo. Mm-hmm. And that just makes me go, whoa, I really can't understand the law and culture of where I'm standing right now. Mm-hmm. How could I understand that? There's so much to learn. And that leads into this second song that I wanted to play, mm-hmm. and that's Archie Roach, uh, his new song called One Song. I heard him introduce this song by saying that at this time in his life, his mind is still boggling by the fact that Aboriginal people were born from country, that they were born into a spirit-created people along with creating every tree, every animal. But then people had to sit so many generations with those tree kin and animal kin in order to understand the story that had sung them in. And that's why there's a song for every being on the planet, including us. We can see from dreaming place A planet that is empty So we sing through time and space That she may have plenty We sing out across the land Across the waters We sing woman We sing man We sing son and daughter Remember well what we have told you Don't forget where you come from Mother Earth will always hold you You were born of just one song 
trees and the rivers flowing and we sing the rain that falls so free and the wind that's blowing blessed that we've been given this beautiful land where we belong dream and story we are living dream and dance Dreaming song Remember well What we have told you And don't forget Where you come from Mother Earth Gonna always hold you Mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Hello listeners, welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard the track One Song, which is a new song by Archie Roach. Yeah, that's the name of the song. It's called One Song. But that was a live recording, mm. a live version that was played on the Q&A show on ABC. I'm not even sure if we're allowed to play that on mm. 3CR radio, but... We'll get oh, them. Well, we did it. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Leanne. Sorry, Michaela. <laughs> so we've got Shannon with us today, and we've been talking about the impact of colonialism with everyone, including animals, and how those issues intersect. Yeah. 
I just wanted to talk a bit more about what the responsibility that we as white settlers have for addressing colonialism in our animal advocacy, but also in our personal advocacy in how we can, maybe also how we can care for country. And earlier, Shannon, you mentioned that you see one of your responsibilities as calling out other white settlers. I also really enjoyed hearing how you've learned so much about this category of animal in the recent years with your work on Gunai Corner Country. What would you say are some of the ways that we can incorporate this in our advocacy for animals, but also maybe in our personal lives, mm-hmm. walking on country that is still unseated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. And mm. it's something I spend like most of my time trying to figure out. Mm. But I think the answer to that question can be given to us by First Nations people. Mm-hmm. And of course, the best way to respond to First Nations ethics and law on country is to, of course, be in relationship with First Nations people so Mm. that you know what response is required. Mm. So it was interesting in 2017, I chose to, um, I said I would never go anywhere without being invited to go somewhere. So not moving on country, not going on holidays and walking up a mountain or if all country is unseated, then I have no right to be moving. And it's interesting as soon as you make that decision, how often you're invited to go places and help. So, for example, then Aunty Sandra Onus put the call out for help to come to the Japarong trees. Mm. So I drove directly over there and that was the beginning of my beautiful involvement and learning from putting my body where it was asked to be put at the time. From there, I came back to Gunakuna country. It was the next weekend that the council tried to cut down the trees where the grey-headed flying foxes were roosting on the river. Mm. That was right in my backyard. So I chained myself, admittedly, with a very small chain that the police mocked, which I'm happy with. (laughs) (laughs) They were really perplexed. They're like, gee, it's a big padlock and a small chain. I'm like, but it works, doesn't it? It's pretty funny. (laughs) Activism's new in Bansal. <laughs> so you can put your body where it's required to be with the simple task of not destroying. That's what we need a lot of, especially mm. out here with the logging. I'll share one thing that I overheard at the Keeping Place one day. A representative of an environmental organisation came in and she was waiting to speak to Rob as an Aboriginal man, the cultural manager of the Keeping Place, And I asked her, oh, why have you come in today? And she said she'd been sent by her organisation to tell Aboriginal people what they're doing, what the organisation is doing for the environment in case they're interested in learning about it, about what's being done to the environment. And I watched Rob listen to her. She basically said, like, I don't, she had presumed that he didn't know about the destruction on his own country that's been going on for 200 years. And He was so generous in his response. He just sat there with her and gave her his full attention and let her tell him what she saw as wrong with country and said, thanks for coming in and telling me. And she went away again and and he didn't go to the protest or something because I'm not sure whether I've communicated it clearly, but the white limitation that we have in thinking that we know Mm. something It needs to just be reversed. And as soon as you reverse it and just put yourself at the use of other people who do know, even when you don't want to know what they know, you can't go in and say, tell me what you know, then I'll decide if your scientific knowledge matches Mm. up with mine. Just thinking about, okay, thousands and thousands of generations (laughs) survived here uh, and not just survived, but science, law, 
incredibly intricate knowledge with country when we're coming from three or four generations and a Western model of science. It just doesn't make sense that we follow our way instead of putting ourselves at the mercy of the happy mercy of community-directed work. Mm. And it always strikes me, that, well, there's two things. One is when people try to target or single out First Nations or Indigenous culture through a specific lens, whether it's from an animal rights lens or through, you know, a feminist lens or something, and, and they they try to, to show places where there are flaws in that culture or where things can be improved. Obviously, no culture is perfect, but it really surprises me that there's constantly this targeting of First Nations and Indigenous cultures, because by and large, they suffer a lot less from these oppressive systems than our Western culture does. By and large, they treat animals a lot better. By and large, they have a lot more acknowledgement of different genders, historically as well, not just locally on this continent, but all over the world, like First Nations and Indigenous cultures are showing to be more progressive-minded in these issues than a lot of the rigid Western culture that's become dominant in the world is. Mm. And I guess the flow-on from that is that it also surprises me that there isn't more of an effort to try and see people from these cultures as allies with the same end goals in mind as your example of the Jabarung trees and, and then coming back to Gunakurnai with, with you know looking to, to take down trees there. You've got environmentalists, animal advocates and people who care about anti-racism and in indigenous sovereignty all sharing the same care of we don't want this land destroyed, we don't want the destruction of the land and the animals that are inhabiting this land. That's a such a joint cause, but it, it's just absent in the mainstream, at least, like from the mainstream environmental issues, from mainstream animal advocacy issues, even anti-racism sort of issues. That shared agenda and goal just doesn't seem to get anywhere near as much attention as it should. And it's really frustrating because that keeps us in our different silos, in our bubbles, which makes things worse because then... It's like we've got our blinkers on and we don't see issues that are affecting other cultures and other people. And especially when you that's compounded when you look at, as you say, like we are, most of us living as settler colonial invaders, whether we like it or not, it's the reality of how we're here and, and how we're living. And we're still approaching it with that real blinkers on, narrow-minded view of just what we say goes. And mm. I find it, it's frustrating, it's sad. I don't really know what the answer is, but I mean, I'm glad you're here to talk about it. And we're hoping that after hearing from people like yourself, Shannon, and, and us talk about these issues, that people will seek out more of these Indigenous culture perspectives, especially with where we're living. No, I think there's a real problem with lack of being able to imagine freedom in the white vegan movement, to be honest. Uh, there's still so much working from within the confines. We're confining ourselves when we think we have the answers. And that's what I found with working with Gunnokono Community Direction. I could never have imagined the expansive knowledge that I've met and the breaking down of barriers I didn't even know were there between humans and animals. Mm. And we can't imagine this freedom. The same mm. with abolition. Let's actually start thinking about how we're limiting ourselves. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading a chapter of the book that's coming out by you and Rob Hudson. And you write about 
an attitude of responsiveness. And you touched upon it a bit before, I feel like, but that is good advice for us as white settlers, white vegan settlers as well, wishing to engage more with First Nations social justice. So what is this attitude that we need to foster and what does it look like? Yeah, to be honest, it looks like not knowing how to do it. I think as white people, uh, we come into a space, we're used to putting time, limitations on things and knowing our roles. And my experience in working at the Keeping Place with Rob, a lot of the time was spent grappling with me not knowing what I was supposed to be doing. But turning up and being in that not knowing, Mm. so I think we're also limited. We don't know how to hang out properly and have real conversations and accept that things come in time. And, of course, you get to know people and trust people and build relationships and deal with the world together, challenges, and that builds friendships. And responsiveness is about making yourself present for all of that. Mm. So it's not about going to someone in an office and saying, I want to pay the rent, can I donate money? It's about walking in and saying, hey, Oh, well, I mean, you can donate money as well. I'm not saying pay the rent is bad. Everyone should be paying the rent, of course. But it's about turning up and saying, I just came for a chat or came to have a look. And that's what keeping places are there for. They're there for you to learn and to be, to meet people, make yourself useful. And in being useful, you become yourself, you know. Mm. Your own ability to contribute is recognised. And so responsiveness is It's pretty easy, really, but it's what we don't usually do. It's just having a go and not having an agenda, just Mm. listening. Yeah. 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 Going to these spaces or starting these conversations, but doing it without an agenda is tough because, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how much time to even budget for or, like, everything is unknown. You don't know how to go about it and... Yeah, it's a difficult thing for people to try and be instigators of that process, but then to have it completely blank as the agenda. Do you have any advice for people like on how to do that first step or ways that they can make that easier? Because I can see that being a challenge for a lot of people, just puts it in the too hard basket and it's like, oh, I'll just stay in my my own sort of white world and, and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. First of all, get on social media and follow all the important people. So all the community members. And if you don't know where to start, start with war, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and start with Lydia Thorpe. Follow what's happening. Go along to an event. And I think the first step for white people is go and just watch yourself. Watch how your body's reacting to the space. Do you feel afraid? What are you afraid of? Find other white people to talk about that with. And notice what your own body does in those spaces because there is nothing more beautiful in the world as a settler and a white settler than to feel the humble honour of being useful in a place or not being damaging in a place. Hmm. So to build those relationships from a genuine desire to share love for country because we all share that. So there's not really a problem. If you are the kind of person who notices yourself wanting to control like your own activities, for example, you've worked hard to set up an event and you're having trouble negotiating with other people, don't think of it as losing control, but think of it as opening up yourself to new ways of doing things that will definitely bring you beautiful feelings (laughs) when you build those relationships. And I know this sounds strange, but if you really feel uh, pained by a loss of control or something when you're organizing events, then Find a therapist to talk about it with. 
because we all, we're interfacing with the world from our own traumas and it's not an easy field if you're fighting against cruelty to animals or against white supremacy. It's not easy. You go there with your own personality and personal experiences. It's uh, the fight has to be its own reward. So support yourself in that fight. Mm. Mm. Has anyone else ever recommended therapy on your radio show? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. Welcome, listeners. Not in one of our shows, but um, <laughs> I think it's a great suggestion. I think therapy is drastically under-resourced and underutilized in our uh-huh. communities. It yep. would make a big difference. We could also set up like small groups for reading um, books or talking about this. I mean, it's important to to get together and, I mean, most of us do it ad hoc when we're at events, like at the Japarong trees or something, talk about our feelings about watching animals being killed or something like that. There's a place for that, but it's for us to work out mm. ourselves as white vegans, you know, mm. and it doesn't have to intersect with telling other people what to do mm. on their country. Yeah. Mm. I also wanted to quickly mention that I've been really interested in hearing how we can talk to other settlers because... I've noticed that, and this was also one of your tweets, Shannon, that I really resonated with, um, is that when dealing with colonialism, there's a lot of research and a lot of talk about the effect on First Nations people, which is completely valid, but there's less spotlight, there's less attention for what are we going to do as settlers? Mm. And specifically to this program and also to our positionality, what are we going to do as white animal advocates, settlers? (laughs) I hope that listeners can take that away from the talk that we've been having. What is our responsibility? And I've also heard some people say that not everything has to be indigenous-led because that places an incredible emotional toll on First Nations people as well. Mm. We have to do the work in our communities as well. Just wondering if that's, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? And have you noticed anything in your work about that? Mm-hmm. Yep. well, I just... I fight colonialism, like I fight mines, I fight cutting down trees. They're the things that white people have done since they got here. As a historian, it's pretty easy for me to go, whoa, it's 1840 again, they're cutting down another tree, and Mm. I refuse this. So Mm. I just stand strong in I'm against other white people acting like white people have always acted. And you're right, I'm not asking Indigenous people to come and do it because it's white business. It's white people doing the damage, so it's us that Mm. should be stopping it. Mm. Mm. And there are just so many fights on so many fronts, you know, Mm. white fisheries, destroying country, white councils, DELP. So there's an endless amount of stuff where you can stand against destruction. That would take up everybody's life (laughs) out here Mm. logging Mm. at the moment. We don't have any Mm. hardly direct action because the only people who want to do it are over the age of 60. So it's hard to sustain and logging's continuing until 2030. Everything's going to be gone. Mm. Lighter habitat, bat habitat. So in terms of responsibility, I have a responsibility to stop white destruction and beyond that to um, work within relationships. And relationships take time to build, but you have to find common ground or if you hold an information session every week, I might come along and make the cups of tea for people or do the washing up afterwards if it's useful. Actually, I just want to encourage people to just go out there and put yourself out there. Everyone's always welcome. Mm. You can't go wrong, really. Mm. Or if you're really scared, just keep your mouth shut and then help. <laughs> That's something we need then to learn. You can't say anything wrong if you do that. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. We were actually talking about this yesterday, how a lot of racism debates are about white people crying over that they're afraid of saying something wrong. 
Like, why, why does, why is a racism and a social justice issue reduced down to saying something right, saying something the right way? It should be much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope listeners can use this in your advocacy and in your personal journey here on First Nations Country. Um, so Shannon, thank you for all your words and your time. Thank you for your ongoing hard work and your time and for all your work in community. I've always liked seeing you at events, Trev. Thanks for your work. No, thanks for coming on. It's been great. See you on the streets. Yeah. (laughs) Or being locked up to a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Freedom of Species will be back next week. Until then, you can get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Uh, We always love to hear from you. We're going to finish with a song by local vegan Kasia Sprout called Seasick. I found comfort in the roads I'm walking There's no stopping where we're going Moving fast, we ain't seeing phases Or the places that we pause Slow down and grab it all Take it in before it falls A time will take the wreckage to the sea I could have guessed that you Would let it slip through the view That things are only worth what they give Don't you feel seasick Sailing on storm generation getting faster every day sinking through life celebrations no and it won't ever be the same slow down and grab it all take it in before it falls a time will take the wreckage Could have guessed that you would let it slip through the view that things are only worth what they give. Don't you feel seasick sailing on storms? Don't you feel seasick sailing on
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.